The pandemic has hit us hard, and healthcare workers are our first and last lines of defense. So while they're looking out for us, who's looking out for them? There has never been a more critical time to address the mental health of our healthcare community. This is Lift the Mask, voices of heroes in the silent pandemic. Join the Quell Foundation and Hartford Health's Dr. John Santopietro as we provide a podcast for healthcare workers discussing their psychological traumas associated with continual exposure to the COVID-19 pandemic. Hello, my name is John Santopietro. I'm a psychiatrist and I am the physician-in-chief at the Behavioral Health Network of Hartford HealthCare, headquartered in Hartford, Connecticut. During the pandemic, I have been part of a team providing support to healthcare workers on the front lines, and I have a particular interest in making sure that their stories get told. The Quell Foundation has put together this podcast in order to lift up the voices of those on the front lines as a way of reaching those who are still out there in the hope that they will be inspired to reach out for the help and support that is there for them. While there's been a lot of reporting about the pandemic in the news and even about the front lines of healthcare, what's unique about this podcast is that you get to hear the stories from the people that lived it and actually are still living it. I would also encourage other leaders to listen into this podcast because there are many lessons and clues about what makes good leadership in a pandemic and a crisis. It is my pleasure to welcome you to Lift the Mask, Voices of Heroes in the Silent Pandemic. Welcome, everybody, to today's Lift the Mask podcast. Really, really pleased and feel very lucky to have Corey Feist with us. Corey is the co-founder of the Lorna Breen Heroes Foundation. Lorna Breen, who many of you know immediately from the name, is the doctor, the woman who tragically died by suicide last year in the early phase of the uh, pandemic. And uh, she was his sister-in-law. So it's really a a remarkable thing that you've made this time. Corey, uh, you're also very busy. (laughs) I know we had a chance to talk uh, before this and you also have an executive role in healthcare, which you may want to talk about as well. I also want to make sure you know that I personally, and we in the Quell Foundation, want to make sure you know that the, with the deepest uh, feelings are sorry for the loss uh, that you've encountered and been through. And I guess maybe to start, Corey, and, and maybe we could, if it's okay, just hear from you a little bit about Dr. Breen, about Lorna, and you can really start wherever you want. And from your perspective, what happened? Let me start by saying thank you for having me today. The opportunity to speak and share this story is something that I think is incredibly powerful and has already had a significant positive impact. And so it is really with humility and gratitude that I'm here today and and just really thank you for the opportunity. Dr. Lorna Breen was an accomplished physician in Manhattan, having spent her entire career there. She was a brilliant human, a passionate snowboarder, a passionate aunt of eight incredible nieces and nephews. She was a world traveler. She was spontaneous and would do things like go to train healthcare workers in India on CPR on about a 48-hour notice and 
fly over there and go for a week. And so she was just an amazing person. She was also very much into career development. And at the time of her death last year was actually a first year at Cornell's MBA program, getting her MBA MS at their healthcare MBA program. And so she was trying to build her career. She was also very knowledgeable about um, burnout, having published an article on uh, operational improvements in the emergency room that could be brought to bear to improve improve well-being, decrease burnout of healthcare workforce. And um, she was passionate about her patients and equally as passionate about her colleagues. Lorna was with us in Big Sky, Montana, almost this time last year, in March of last year, and uh, was right when the pandemic was really heating up. And we were watching her trying to remotely stay connected and help with the operations. I should say, importantly, Lorna had no prior history or any history at all of any mental health diagnosis or never sought counseling for any anything. Um, there were no dark hidden secrets about her past, didn't suffer from any alcohol or substance abuse, and really was just an all-around incredible um, athlete and, and intellect and just passionate physician. When she returned from our ski trip where we were planning her 50th birthday party that was going to be in October of 2020. Um, she returned to the emergency room at the New York Presbyterian Allen Hospital where she was the medical director. And unfortunately, very shortly after returning to New York, contracted COVID within days mm-hmm. and started showing symptoms of, of being a COVID patient. So she rested at home having no uh, significant other or, or children or really immediate family in the area and understanding that things like blood ox or pulse oxes, that's the right, that's the right term. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Mm-hmm. were not in great supply. We sent her one to monitor her oxygen rate while she was trying to recover at home. She was, she didn't have respiratory problems, but had some of the more typical symptoms of, of the disease and lost a tremendous amount of weight in a short period of time. And, was kind of convalescing at home while also trying to monitor the operations in her hospital because at that point, her colleagues, many of whom like her were contracting COVID. And so they were monitoring the numbers of nurses, physicians, and, and so on who were having to step out of the workforce to recover from the pandemic. And so uh, being a passionate physician, as soon as she was afebrile, for 48 hours was put back onto um, the rotation at her direction and at her request. And actually, you know what? Because I'm already, I th- there's a list of things that I've, I'm just, okay. A, I just, and I, uh, in my head. And so, first yeah. of all, I think this podcast and your being here is a tribute to her, you know, and, who, and who she was. And so, I love that you started with the, the passion in a, mm-hmm. and until you described it in that way, I don't know if I realized the passion was everywhere, you know, for her own life, for other people's lives, for her patients. And then I do remember when we talk, because I'm going to have to be transparent about the fact I am a doctor, right? So my ear as a doctor, hit things hit me, right, as mm-hmm. you're talking. So one of the things that's already hitting me is that whether she was on vacation, whether she's sick with covid she is not disconnected. She is staying, you know, and she's in leadership role, but she's staying connected to work even as she's, um, and it's interesting that you mentioned the pulse ox because it, 
you know, I remember back in those days. And in fact, there was a, somebody here whose significant other was a doctor and they didn't have pulse ox at home. So it is, it, it's so interesting. So, so, okay. So she then she's home, she's ill. It sounds like it was pretty bad. And then how did she decide to go back? What happened? Well, she was, as you say, uh, you know, like many physicians, she was never off the clock. And in that leadership role and in the height of a pandemic or in the brewing height, nobody knew at what point things were going to peak. She was monitoring what was going on and trying to get the, the, the emergency department staffed. And so really, as soon as she was afebrile for 48 hours, she went back into the workforce. And so uh, her first day back on the job was the 1st of April. What was remarkable about all of this is that she is 22 months uh, separated from my wife, Jennifer, in age. And so they were attached at the hip. It was always the three of us doing everything for my entire, that the entire time I've known Jennifer. And they talked many, many times a day. And we were all monitoring Lorna's condition remotely and uh, keeping in touch with her throughout her almost a recovery period, but it was really just convalescing at home due <clears throat> to the illness. And then when she went back into the workforce and back to work, was so overwhelmed with the volume of death and dying that she observed and so ill-equipped to care for the patients and the entire system, not just one person was ill-equipped, but the entire system. So, you know, not enough oxygen in the, in the waiting rooms or not enough, enough oxygen in the walls, if you will. So giving people handheld oxygen that was, that expired. And so too did the patients in the waiting room, you know, people out in ambulances for hours. It was just, it went to wartime medicine. It, it was really a, a tsunami of death and dying that she described as, as Armageddon. Uh, that wow. was that was her word, and what was remarkable. First, I learned in retro in retro or after the fact that her first day back, she was as concerned about her colleagues as her patients, and so she was going around to her colleagues and asking if they had received her PPE care packages that she had had delivered while she was, you know, sending them care packages from home, if you will, making sure that her colleagues got what they needed. Because remember, at those, those early days, we didn't really know what we needed from a PPE perspective. And there was just such a rush on everything and there was such limited supply and it was highly variable. So, so that's one of the remarkable things was, again, her, one of her first concerns was for the well-being of, of her colleagues. And then the second piece that was also remarkable and I think very typical of the healthcare industry, which I think is probably not well-known outside of the industry, is that she was so self-critical about her ability or lack thereof to keep up and very cognizant of the fact that her professional colleagues may have been observing that and that was a sign of weakness. And almost from the day she got back, people are gonna recognize that I couldn't keep up and therefore this will impact my career was language that we were hearing very, very early in her return. And then what we were hearing, and remember, this is someone who had just lost a bunch of weight, who was just incredibly exhausted and depleted going into this firefight, if you will. Even though she was on 12-hour shifts, she was working 14, 16, 20-hour shifts. So days at a time, because no one was going home because of the volume of death and dying. And they couldn't get patients, you know, move through the emergency department into other under, into beds, and they, it was just a it was just a big mess. And so, 
what was remarkable was, well, that wasn't, wasn't remarkable, but, but those were the two things that really stuck out early on. And so because of that, and because we knew she was struggling almost immediately, we weren't just checking in, you know, once a day, we were checking in multiple times a day with her and insisting on her even sharing with us, you know, when she got home at night. Because, you know, in, in those early times, it was also hard to travel on public transportation or through cabs or whatever, because people weren't picking up passengers. But it was often very middle of the night text messages that we were getting just saying, I'm home. Can I, um, can I drill down on that for a little bit, Corey? Because that ahead. is so powerful, that, you know, that line of thinking, what you were just talking about. So, you know, starting with clearly, I, I wrote down the word selfless, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. uh, her focus on others. I'm sort of making a mental list and thinking to myself, you know, healthcare workers, doctors, not an uncommon characteristic, selflessness. And then this, I want to go back to when, when she decided to go back and she jumped into Armageddon, basically. And I want to ask you, because um, most of the people we've been talking to uh, saw the pandemic creep up. I mean, it happened right. not slowly, but they saw it step by step. There was the announcement. There was one patient. There were a few patients. They thought it was the flu, that it wasn't. And mm-hmm. so they saw a progression. They didn't jump into Armageddon. So was that a function of she'd been on the sidelines while the war was ramping up because of the COVID? And by the time she got in the game, it was already wartime? Or what do you think that was? Well, I think, you know, remember, we're talking about Ground Zero, really, which was New York City. And this was in March and April of last year. And so I think that uh, the patients were always there uh, from almost the time that she got back and contracted it. It just was a tsunami of patients, whether there was any real, I think, when she arrived at our vacation in early March, Uh, they were already seeing COVID patients. And so that might've been the ramp up if there was ever really a ramp up, but nobody knew what they were doing, right? I think that that was absolutely kind of the, she went right into the fire. And and I also think, you know, that we can talk about this much later, but from a repetitive trauma perspective, what we have had for the last year and what she experienced very quickly wasn't just running back into the burning building one time. It was every single day until she just broke. And I think that that is, as you know, we can talk more about that, but that's what the healthcare workforce has been struggling with this entire year is repetitive trauma, which I don't think people recognize. Uh, that's a, that's a really good term. Downstream actually. impact. That's a really good term, Corey. My dad's a clinical psychologist. So, uh-huh. so. Uh, interesting. And I just think I haven't <laughs> been using that term enough as you, as you said it. And, and this thing that you, when you said that she said, you know, she was experiencing, I can't keep up. That really struck a chord. How did she say that? What what did she say about it? She just said exactly that. I cannot keep up and everyone is starting to notice. And remember, she wasn't a junior physician. She was supposed to be, you know, if you're the leader of the emergency room, if you're the general Mm -hmm. of the war, showing weakness that you can't keep up in the middle of a pandemic just having had COVID, I mean, to those who are listening to this might think, well, of course uh, you couldn't keep up. And in retrospect, it's a ludicrous thought that people would judge you in that way. But when I have shared the story with other in the healthcare field, they're like, oh no, that's exactly how we're trained. We're trained from the moment that we really, in some ways get into medical school, but certainly residents, the sign of showing weakness is not acceptable. 
and is so competitive that that can be a, a real career limiter. So that was a repetitive kind of a thing for days. And for us to be able to hear you describe it as they were, you're transmitting her thoughts. And, and, right. and particularly after the, this such a tragic kind of end to where this went, you know, it's, it's a fairly incredible thing, Corey, really to hear so explicitly that you called it self-criticism, this, this feeling. And I'm, of course, again, I'm a doc. I, I'm like, that's a doc thing to think. I can't keep up. But it's actually, uh, it's not just docs. And we're talking about healthcare in this podcast. I mean, healthcare workers in general. And, and, this, and the even finer point you said, and people are noticing. And, and you guys are, like you said, uh, the three of you, you know, always tuned in. So you're seeing it frame by frame, day by day. Was that surprising to you or not that she would be that self-critical that she would say, you know, have that thought, I'm not keeping up and people are noticing. Was that a new thing for her? This might've been the first time that we'd ever observed her not being able to keep up. And also think about this. It's also a time when for probably in a very unique way for healthcare, if your job is taking care of people all day long, you have the tools at your disposal more or less to do it. And for the most part, you know how to take care of and, and fix people. Uh, that's yep. obviously a technical term uh, as a non-physician. This is for the first time, they don't even know how to do it. And th right. the tools are inadequate. Right. And so uh, the, the sense of personal failure immediately, all of those things are just mounting in her own self-talk, if you will. And it's, yeah. and it's real because her patients are dying and the patients are dying everywhere. And if your calling <clears throat> is to go into medicine to heal and you cannot do that, that in and of itself is just an interesting narrative. I, I, will, I would like to just share one thing though, yeah. because I think it's also important and we will, I'm sure we will learn this downstream of this disease. Uh, it has been our hypothesis since the very beginning that COVID impacted the way that she thought. And interestingly, I work with an organization uh, that is a mental health organization getting volunteers to take care of the healthcare workforce. And an individual that I work with in that organization who's in the mental health profession recently contracted COVID. And as she described it to me post COVID, it was a mild case. Now, obviously I'm giving you an anecdote, but it was really interesting what she said. She said the feelings of failure and depression and anxiety that she experienced were intense. Mm -hmm. And so there's all of the things about the profession and right. the training. But I right. also believe that COVID, and we've believed this from the beginning because it was such a rapid transformation too. But I don't want to dismiss the fact that trauma can right. have a very quick impact on people. And I think that's one of the things that listeners need to be aware of right. is right. how quickly you can go from completely functional to yeah. not. Yeah. Over the course of the COVID-19 pandemic, frontline healthcare workers have faced unprecedented levels of stress and anxiety. It is through our podcast, Lift the Mask, Voices of Heroes in the Silent Pandemic, that we encourage listeners to share their story and start an open and honest dialogue about their experiences to help remove the stigma around mental illness. If you are interested in sharing your story, please contact klynch at thequellfoundation.org. That's K-L-Y-N-C-H at thequellfoundation.org. 
And I, it struck me when we talked before, you, I think you said that we consider it a COVID death, you know, Absolutely. and in some ways that goes, that goes both ways that goes to the, to the, she didn't have the flu, you know, she had COVID and it goes to the, this picture you've painted of, I mean, the image for me is the water's coming over the dam and it's coming over at such a rate and you have no buckets at all to deal with it. And the, the way that that hits the character and I, and I don't want to call it typical because, I mean, she uh, she's an incredible person, unique, amazing person, but not uncommon for docs, not uncommon for nurses, not uncommon for therapists, not uncommon for people that are working in healthcare to be very attuned to, am I getting the job done? Am I keeping up? And the sense of that point was crossed for her. And she let you in on that. And then I think you were you were you're about to say when I interrupted you, like what happened? Because you were tuned into her, you knew that she was declining, and there was this there was a really interesting uh, story about how the family kind of reached out to help her. Absolutely. And before I go there, I want to pick up on something you just said, though, because I think it's important mm-hmm. about Lorna and the reason why Jennifer and I are doing this work. This has never been about one person since the day that she died. And so we'll get more into that, I'm sure, later. But I want to make sure the listeners understand that this is not us intentionally reliving this story to celebrate or not one human. This is really is a wake-up call and a call to action by the industry and by the public um, to take care of the healthcare workforce and for those in the healthcare workforce to take care of themselves and those who are leading healthcare organizations to make sure that the well-being of their workforce is really sought after because this is so widespread and her amazing attributes are so similar in across the profession and across the field. So I just want to make a point of that work, um, before moving on. So, so when she went back and she couldn't keep up, it was only a handful of days later that Jennifer received the most tragic of calls from her and the most shocking which was a call from her sister who had said, I have been sitting in this chair for hours and I cannot get out of this chair and I think I want to die. And, you know, rewind a few weeks and we're sitting in a hot tub planning your 50th birthday party and you've never had any issues at all from from depression or anything like that. And so all of a sudden you're just kind of go, what's going on? So, so Jennifer said, well, okay, well, here's the thing. Um, Jennifer and I are both lawyers, so we're good at good at problem solving. Uh, okay, I'm in charge. You're out. I'm tapping you out. I'm getting you an airplane ticket, and you're coming to the family home in Virginia. Mm-hmm. And and she said, I I cannot get to the airport. And Jennifer said, Well, okay, then I'll buy you a plane ticket. I'm sorry, a train ticket. I can't get to the train. And so um, we pulled a uh, very quick help chain, if you will, and we contacted a medical school friend of hers who was in Connecticut and we picked up the phone and we said, we need an intervention right now and we need you to go get her. We need you to drive into Manhattan. Remember, nobody was driving anywhere. I mean, it was completely locked down. And uh, this physician left her patients. Luckily, she was actually a psychiatrist just by happenstance. She left her patients and she got to Manhattan, to Lorna's apartment, and she drove south. She threw some things in a bag and and drove south. And uh, one of Lorna's high school friends lived in the Pennsylvania area. And so drove, she drove to Philadelphia where they met on the side of the road and put Lorna in the car and she drove South. And all the while my wife, Jennifer was driving North from Virginia and they literally picked her up on the side of the road of 695 outside of Baltimore. 
and Jennifer drove her south towards the University of Virginia. And um, by that point, because I work at the University of Virginia Health System, I had been able to uh, contact the Department of Psychiatric Medicine and the department chair who said, just bring her to the emergency department and we'll make sure she gets a bed in the inpatient unit. And that's what they did. This is what so you called the help chain. Is that right? Chain. Is that what you yeah. called it before help the chain. help chain? Yeah, it was a, whatever you want to, some kind of a train, the help train, you should probably call it, but uh, help I'm train. an operations person. So we use uh, in lean and six Sigma languages, the help chain, it's who do you go to for help and what's the chain right. there? So it's probably better described as a help train. That was a miraculous thing in and of itself. It, and we it's, got her to the hospital. I mean, it also, it, it really locates this, you know, story in a pandemic you know, because of the, how it's affected our lives. And, and I, I'm really stuck on this moment, the call that you said, when she's in the chair, I can't get up. I'm, I'm stuck in a really powerful, you know, first of all, that she reached out, you know, it speaks yeah. to how connected she is, you know, and, and to her sister and to you, because she didn't have to reach out, you know, and it gives a view to a moment that a lot of people don't have a view to, you know, right. I mean, and you know her to know how outer space that was as a moment for her. Like, I mean, based on what you've said about her to say, I cannot get out of this chair. I can't even take the ticket you want to give me. And there are thoughts of death, you know, in my head. You know, one of the things I think that's really helpful about the podcast is that people that are on the front lines of healthcare during this pandemic have been describing kind of moment by moment, almost frame by frame. This is what it started to feel like when I was about to hit the wall, when I hit the wall. And that seems like a hit the wall moment. So Corey, I'm trying to think about, you know, I, I'm not sure uh, how much, you know, more you, you want to say about her uh, her story uh, at this point after that. Let me, let me ask you and, and follow your lead on that. I mean, obviously it became a national story probably pretty quickly. I don't know if you want to talk about, uh, it's, I'll just leave it up to you and, and what kind of, you know. Sure. Um, because I think that was also one of the most, I mean, the whole thing was, as Jennifer has recently described it, I mean, the whole thing was just been bizarre and surreal, to be honest with you. And I think there's so many lessons here around the stigma of mental health and suicide that can be learned. I mean, there's so many lessons in this whole story for the industry, but just for, for individuals, there are so many lessons around the stigma and how ill-equipped we are societally to help out in mental health. So I will briefly discuss, you know, kind of the final days that we exhibited with her and then and then this mm -hmm. roller coaster that we've been on, only to say that she spent uh, 11 days in an inpatient bed at the University of Virginia and um, came out and was discharged to her mother's care. Her mother was a retired psychiatric nurse, actually. Mm -hmm. And um, she was discharged to her mother's care and spent some time with her mother and then came to spend some time with our family for the weekend because she was incredibly close to my children. Jennifer and I work in full-time jobs and, and so really couldn't take care of her during the week because we didn't really know what we were doing either. Mm -hmm. um, and she spent the weekend with us and that first weekend that she was with us, um, she decided to take her life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, what was even more surreal about that experience for us or shock was that within 
12 hours, I'll say 12 to 15 hours of her death, the New York Times had the story over my objection, had published the story and the fact that she died by suicide. And I think in that, there are a couple things just that I think are important for us to all recognize. First of all, I think every parent in America is a junior pediatrician based on what you learn at the playground and comparing <clears throat> notes with other parents and about different things. However, when it comes to mental health, the conversation around suicide, unless you have experienced it, it's not like something we talk about around the playground. And so while Jennifer and I are not medical professionals, we are pretty accomplished professionals. We were completely and totally ill-equipped to even recognize what the signs were or really handle that situation that was clearly over our, over our ability level. And I think that because she didn't want anyone to know about mm -hmm. her admission, and I think it's also very important to know that when she got formal help, the entire time she was getting help, and then after she mm -hmm. said that this had ruined her career by getting professional help. So that, that's very important as well to recognize that she was very clear about that. She knew she was getting it and she was convinced she was going to lose her license and her career would be over. Dear. So this was the inpatient admission for her was the nail in the professional coffin, which started to be hammered when she went back to work and couldn't keep up, at least in her mind. So I think one immediate lesson for us was we were completely ill-equipped for a lot of reasons. You know, one of my things, you think about this stuff, it's almost been, it hasn't been a year yet, but it's almost been a year for us. You think about it every day still, just how ill-equipped we were. And one of the things that I would you know, contrast that with is my kid came in and had some spots on his hand and he was a little kid. I'd say, oh, you have hand, foot and mouth, you know, let's take a look at it. Cause, mm -hmm. and not cause I have a medical degree. It's cause I, Johnny's mom at the playground told me about hand, foot and mouth. So anyway, I think that's an important thing. The other thing that really was the stigma of suicide mm -hmm. was immediate and it was profound on the entire family. And so I found myself in this same chair that I'm sitting in speaking with you, mm -hmm. pleading with an editor at the New York Times to please not publish this cause of death mm -hmm. because we, it's just too much. We're in shock. We don't really know what happened mm -hmm. and she's gone mm -hmm. and give us some grace here. And um, I'll never forget the response I got, which was, I'm sorry, we published eight minutes ago online and it is not our policy to take it down. And so what that did for us was it put us in a position where we had to then decide whether we wanted to lean into the conversation or not. And in retrospect, it was a complete and total blessing. In that moment, it was a horror on top of a tragedy uh -huh. and it put us even further into this crater that we were, you know, we were in, in the fetal position, if you will, you didn't think you could get any possible, any lower. And all of a sudden this is in the New York times within, within oh. under 24 hours. So, oh. so I think that one of the things about that moment that was so also important was the moment of clarity to the extent that mm -hmm. anyone can have a moment of clarity in the middle of a trauma mm -hmm. that Jennifer and I came to the, the realization that we needed, if this story was out, okay, band-aids ripped off, we need to lean into the conversation and tell the story the way that, that it needs to be told. Yep. And in that moment, it was really to honor this physician 
and to shine a light on how quickly, how quickly these things can turn and not knowing where the pandemic was going to go, really a wake up call to the United States and to the healthcare workforce. You've got to look out, folks. Yeah. Um, and so within 48 hours of her death, we went on the Today Show with Savannah Guthrie. It was actually published 72 hours after her death. But if you go back yeah. on our website, yeah. drlaurenabreen.org, and you and you watch that that interview, recognize that what you're seeing is a family who was only 48 hours into this. And what's remarkable is how amazing my spouse did wow. after losing her soulmate in that interview, and and how clear she was with her message, which has really been steadfast since that time. We believe everyone should have the opportunity to speak and be heard in an authentic, judgment-free space. It is in support of this mission that our generous partners at AbleTo have donated free therapy programs for healthcare professionals. With AbleTo, you'll get a personalized eight-week virtual therapy program that's proven to reduce depression and anxiety. Individuals work one-on-one -on -one with a licensed therapist over phone or video to help you learn new skills you can use daily to help manage stress and find more joy. If you are interested in this free eight-week virtual therapy program, please reach out to rwilk at thequellfoundation.org. That's R-W-I-L-K at thequellfoundation.org or klynch at thequellfoundation.org. That's K-L-Y-N-C-H at thequellfoundation.org. Spaces are limited at this time, so do not hesitate to get the help you need. Corey, there's so many powerful things in a, packed into what you're saying. And I, I, before we get into the way in which you've leaned in, and leaned in is not a big enough term for what you have done. I mean, what you are building and, and what the Learner Breen Heroes Foundation is doing and all the other things. But before that, I actually want to go back to just to make a little space for the, the story you, you told about her death and how, you know, this didn't happen, you know, with her in Alaska. It happened, you know, it, 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 the fam with family in the environment. I mean, and just to kind of breathe about that for a minute, that's a, that's really powerful that, you know, you said that. And then you said it a couple of times about, and I just for to be clear about the point, I guess I would say, especially for physicians, but I wouldn't say just physicians, this idea of, of the many resistances to, you know, getting mental health treatment. One of them is, is this going to affect my license? Is this going to affect my reputation? Is this going to affect my career? And, you know, you even wonder if that had been in her mind before as she was debating, you know, whether to reach out and not uncommon at all. Lots of work, I'm sure you know, going on in, at the state level about changing in law, the things that can be part of the stigma, but it's not all the, the law and the regulations in the boards of medicine. It's also what's in the culture around stigma, which is what you really are leaning into. And then the other thing is it was not a usual situation to have 12 hours after such a tragedy in a family to have to navigate the issue of a national story. And just, again, how powerfully you put that. We're trying to metabolize what's happening, and we're having to make decisions that are having national implications. But it, it sounds like you, you both said both that was incredibly difficult and 
maybe there was something good about it relative to navigating the stigma trap. And maybe let's talk about that because you now seem to me to be somebody that's able to speak about the stigma of, of suicide around uh, suicide and mental illness more powerfully than many, many people. So talk with us a little bit about, about that and about where you've taken, you know, this tragedy to really lean in and change the world. Sure. And thank you for saying that we're doing our best <clears throat> and that licensure issue, we're all over that as well, because there's just so much that needs to be changed. But, but the first thing I think is really a very simple message and it is the power of what we're doing today and the power of sharing the story and just having this conversation. Because what we have learned in the wake of Lorna's death is that when the unspeakable happens to you and you speak of it, it gives others who have been suffering in silence, who have been unable to speak, permission to speak and come out of the shadows. And that has happened in spades. For months after Lorna's death, we received handwritten letters, stacks of handwritten letters from around the world. People we never knew, people we had met one time 20 years before, sharing their own stories, emails from physicians around the stigma, around the fact that we were speaking up and how this was giving them an opportunity to share their stories. Did you and say permission before? Like Permission. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean is it's out there. And what I mean by permission, it's when someone starts to talk about it, it starts to normalize it. And I think that's what the power of the conversation is, is it starts to normalize it. The more I tell this story, the more normal <laughs> maybe it can become. And the more we talk about mental health and the more we talk about the fact that mental health is health, it's the same thing. Physical health and mental health are the, are, are, are the same thing. And so the more we talk about that, the more it just, it just is, right? And oh, by the way, that doesn't cost a nickel. It takes everyone to accept that mental health is health, just like breaking your leg or your finger. Right. My boss is an orthopedic surgeon, so all of my analogies by contract have to be have to be <laughs> orthopedic related. But but they are. It is it is absolutely the case that I have, and I have seen it. I have the proof in my, and it's some of it's in my inbox, and some of it's in my literal mailbox. Yeah. Um, stacks of of stories now. Yeah, and, and they come in every single day still. I mean, it certainly is very much in line with what the Quell Foundation is about, right? This podcast and the other work that the Quell Foundation does is about getting the voices out there, lifting the mask. But the power of you saying, when I asked you, what, you know, where, where are you going with the foundation? And you saying the first thing, the first thing that's transformative is speaking about it. That's really powerful. Well, and that's what, when we started our foundation, <clears throat> what we thought the value we could add to this <clears throat> conversation was just in awareness, but not realizing the power of that, the real power that that awareness brought to uh -huh. a, a, an issue that was under the covers or under the, you know, hidden in the darkness. And so that has been very powerful. And so since the time that we started the foundation this summer, which has all just been a snowball of conversations, part of our awareness efforts have been on the, on the legislative front. 
So we have the Dr. Lorna Breen Healthcare Provider Protection Act, which a bipartisan group of senators and members of the House of Representatives have, they introduced in July after uh, July of 2020 and are about to reintroduce in uh, the end of actually early March of this year. It has now been funded with $140 million worth of funding. And importantly, uh, we worked with industry experts to make an immediate and a long-term impact. This was not just, this wasn't a bill for Lorna, it was named after her. This was a bill for the healthcare workforce. And it was also not specific to physicians. It is specific to all healthcare professionals and provides significant funding for healthcare professional training. Yeah, the, the majority of the funding goes to nursing schools, medical schools, uh, to make that long-term impact on the issue. There's also a, a significant portion of funding that goes towards health systems right now to help them take best practices, which have been in the industry, just not really widely adopted, and adopt them. And it also, importantly, supports a nationwide advocacy campaign, an awareness campaign. I shouldn't say advocacy, a, a nationwide awareness campaign. Mm-hmm. And again, I think you know, the power of talking about this, it's remarkable. And I'll just share a very brief story because I think it's its important for your listeners. So on the eve of Thanksgiving, we received an email out of the blue from a physician and a physician who worked in a large, a large health system who did not want the health system to be named, but mm-hmm. was gave me permission to share the story. Effectively, by reading the articles that have appeared and are listening to our story or Lorna's story, Her note was to us to say that she saw herself in Lorna's story. And after years of denying herself the ability to get help, she finally got help, formal counseling help, which saved her life. And it was like, I mean, it just, you know, you just kind of sat there and you're reading this email and you're going, oh my gosh, just by talking about this, someone took care of themselves. And again, the the unfortunate part of the story connecting to a comment you made before is that she didn't want the location of where she worked to be known because she was, she's still afraid of the professional stigma and the impact on potentially a licensure. So I didn't mean to digress on that point. No, that's not a digression at all. I mean, Corey, it actually makes me think, right? Because on the one hand, I'm hearing legislation, you know, what you talk about a snowball, you went from what happened and experiencing it to legislation and changing the world. But also this story brings back the point, even if it just helps one person, that's kind of, mm-hmm. you know, that it, and it, it helps at scale, but it also helps people one at a time. So let me ask you, what are the main, when this works, you know, not if, but when in two years in three years, I know there's some short-term stuff, but what, what fundamentally do you see is going to be, different? What's the outcome? What, what's different sure. in the system? Is it the culture? Is it people thinking about things? You know, the trauma of it you've mentioned, what's your vision about that? So before I answer that question, I, I do want to say one thing. When you said before, if we could help just one person, that's exactly what we had said. Mm. And as soon as I showed Jennifer that email that I was talking to, I said, there's your person. So are we done? <laughs> and she said, not a chance not a chance. So our work and our goal is to reduce the burnout and to improve the well-being of healthcare professionals. Envisioning this world where seeking mental health services is universally viewed as a sign of strength. Okay. Mm. And in order to do that, what we're doing is really three main bodies of work. 
and I'll just very briefly touch on each kind of goal in each area because I think that it's important. We have learned along the way that many healthcare organizations don't necessarily have the toolkit to take care of their workforce or know what to do. Because as you know, there's there before the pandemic, 400 doctors a year were dying by suicide. And a lot of that was related to burnout. And burnout is caused by, I would say, overly bureaucratic issues in hospitals like electronic medical records and things like that. And so mm-hmm. one of our big areas that we have stepped into now, given our expertise that we've developed along the way, as well as an incredible network, is advising the healthcare industry to implement well-being initiatives. And so one of uh, we're about to launch a nationwide campaign, an all-in for the well-being of the workforce campaign, if you will. The campaign is technically called All-In Well-Being First for Healthcare. And one of those goals is to get all of the 6,000 hospitals across the country to sign on to the well-being and make a commitment to the well-being. Oh. So that is one of our main goals. And we are we are positioning ourselves to be able to advise the healthcare industry on how to do it. Again, using industry, industry leaders. One of the things, as you know, in the healthcare industry, it's very siloed. And what we've been able to do in this work is we've cut across those silos and brought groups together that were working independent of each other. And we've, we've helped bring them together. Many of them were already working together, but we've helped mm-hmm. to bring them together and serve as a catalyst of this change. Mm-hmm. So, so we're, di- we're being disruptors, if you will, in, in a good way. We're also trying to build awareness around the issues that, to reduce the stigma. And so I don't know what the goal line is with that, but the awareness piece so far, we've already been in been able to reach 65 million people around the world with the message. I don't know if the goal is 65 million. Absolutely. We've been able to quantify that through work that we've done with uh, some marketing firms who have kind of done the analytics on all of the appearances. I mean, this has been been broadcast around the world repeatedly. And if you look at all the publications it's been in, in the local, the national, the international news, already well over 65 million. And then what we want to do is we want to fund research and programs to reduce professional burnout, not unlike the programs that will be created and funded through the Dr. Warner Breen Healthcare Provider Protection Act. Again, using best practices and also looking at, importantly now, the impact that burnout is having on the quality of healthcare. So in July, we published an article in US News and World Report a call to action in the U.S. News and World Report on the day that the best hospitals in America was published. And one of the things that we did was we dissected different industries and we said, these are our goals and a call to action for each one. But one of those that we did was a call to action to rating agencies like U.S. News and World Report to include in their ratings of healthcare organizations how the well-being of the workforce, knowing that there was a relationship to the quality of care. But what we've seen is there's already been a decline in the quality of healthcare provided this year because the workforce is burnt out. So research that's going to go towards finding ways to improve it uh, longitudinally. So we've got a few things in our toolkit. And I guess the last thing I would just say is on the regulatory trapping side and, and all of those reinforcers of stigma, we are working across organizations at the state level to try to change licensure law. Uh, There are also other areas uh, where 
hospitals have credentialing applications for doctors to go work there that have questions or insurance companies have questions in their forms before a doctor gets covered by malpractice insurance or commercial private you know paying insurance companies have questions on their applications for doctors to be paid for their work so there are many layers and one of our goals is to eliminate all of those reinforcers that appear in any of those layers um, to call it ambitious is doesn't really get it. And it needs to be ambitious. I mean, this is a, a problem that's pervasive. It's in the culture. And in some ways, there's no way to solve it without top to bottom. And it seems, Corey, like you and, and, and your family have taken this just, you know, tragedy that you so eloquently shared with us and brought us into the moment of and have transformed that into a movement that if anything has a chance of doing this, you guys are there. You know, it, it's really extraordinary to, to have, you know, to spend this time with you. I, I want to, you know, I'm going to ask if you have any final thoughts, but uh, before that, just again, to thank you for bringing us into this. It was a national story. We've heard the story, but to hear it in your words from the family and, you know, very, very close with her and, and for you to, come here and be able and willing to do that with us is kind of a sacred thing. And I want to thank you for that. And like you said, it's got a, there's a reason for it, right? The reason is not just to tell the story and, and not even just to celebrate one life, although I'm glad that we did a little bit, but it's to do something bigger, even just by talking, you're doing something that would in some ways be a lot, but you're doing so much more. And it's really, it fills me with hope and as, as it does our listeners, I'm sure, to see the success that you are having with this. Let me just ask you before we finish, are there, is there something um, else that you would want to add in today's podcast? As you know, we could talk for hours about this, and uh, we probably will when the, when the formal uh, recording is off. I, I think um, I would say, first of all, we would really recognize that we are just a catalyst here, and we need help. And so we are a call to, to join us in this journey and a call to follow us through our website and on social media at drlornabreen.org is probably the best way to keep up with us and join the movement because we want as many people on the movement of like-minded individuals. And the other thing I would just also say is while many of these things are complicated, talking about these issues and checking in on the well-being of each other is a very simple and incredibly powerful thing that we all can do, regardless of what industry we're in. But now more than ever, that's part of our message here is don't wait. This happened to us in a compressed period of time. If you think someone might need help, just pick up the phone and check in on them because they probably do. And you just might save a life by doing it. We got a lot of complicated things and a lot of complicated solutions, but that one is a pretty simple solution. Well, I'm so impressed, Corey, again, uh, in talking with you, the way in which you're able to articulate the work you guys have done is at a high level, a deep level, but it's a simple level. 
if you take anything, I think you just said, if you take anything away from this podcast, check in with each other. It doesn't even matter where you are. I mean, we're talking about healthcare. Certainly that's a focus, but you know, wherever you are. And I want to respond to your call for action and call for help. So I'm glad you, uh, Dr. You guys are also on Twitter and Facebook. Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, we're on, we're on all of those things. So yeah, and, and all of that is on the bottom of our website and it's an easy click. And it, it doesn't hurt for people who are interested to get aware of the legislation and be active in your community and with your, with your legislators. This is really, really good stuff. So again, Corey, thank you so much for joining the podcast and we wish you well and, and hope to stay connected to you and, and support you any way we can. Is truly an honor and thank you so much for the time. Lift the Mask, Voices of Heroes in a Silent Pandemic with Dr. John Santo Pietro, executive produced by Kevin M. Lynch, The Quell Foundation, and Mod Worldwide. Managing producer, Sarah Marshall, theme song by Musical Smile. The show is engineered and edited by Scott Waz and Steve Campagna of Philadelphia Post. Assistant audio editor, Vlad Radu. Film editor at Mod Worldwide. Voiceover artist, Sinead Doyle. Research and development by Colleen Lowe, Nick Lee, Jessica Ripper, and Caitlin Spurlock. Special thanks to Renee Wilk and Brittany McCormick as associate producers. Please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts, and you might hear your review on a future episode. Got a question? Email the Quell Foundation at liftthemask at thequellfoundation.org for sponsorship information or to find out how you can share your story as a guest on a future episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever great podcasts are downloaded. Also, Please remember to share this podcast with friends and family who would enjoy this content. This is not a podcast for personal disclosure of suicidal thoughts or behaviors and is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. If you are in crisis, please call 911 or go to your nearest emergency department for assistance. Call 1-800-273-TALK, that's 1-800-273-8255 or text HELP to 741-741 if you're thinking about suicide. The Quell Foundation is a registered 501c3 not-for-profit organization benefiting the over 62 million Americans living with a mental health illness. Tax ID 47 512